I always love to be able to celebrate the things that God does in our church family. And one of the things that happened uh, over the holidays this year was that um, uh, Zemo up here on the front row, Zemo was announced as the employee of the year at Arby's this year. And uh, what a neat honor for him. I know he's worked there several years and uh, it's neat to be able to see they recognize your hard work. And we just congratulate you uh, on that, that award he got this year. Really, really cool to see uh, how hard work pays off. I hope that you uh, are ready for a brand new year, and I want to start this year uh, just with a special message this morning, reminding us of who we are in Christ and what God has called us to do in the new year. I know we've been in a series in 1 John. I want to step away from that today for for just this one message and and draw your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's a passage that... uh, that Paul is writing to the, the church of Corinth. And, and just a, a real quick background and, and, a, and a quick brief uh, synopsis of, of who Paul is. He is the apostle that God has called to take the message of the gospel to the Gentile world. And, and Paul preached grace at every turn. Uh, you remember the, the story of Paul and his conversion on the road to Damascus and how that God met him there. And and Paul realized in that moment that it wasn't all of his striving, it wasn't all of his work, it wasn't all of the things that he had done to try to keep the Jewish law that was going to save him, but it was a face-to-face encounter with Jesus Christ. Paul became one of the greatest church planters in the history of the church, and he would go into a town, he would preach the gospel, folks would respond to that, they would raise up leaders, they would train them, and hand off that ministry to to these leaders that God was raising up, and then Paul would move on to the next town. He had spent about two years in Corinth, which was longer than Paul usually stayed in one location. And he stayed with them and he preached the gospel. And and Corinth was a wicked, wicked city. But God began to turn that place around. But every time it seemed like Paul would leave a church and move on to the next place to start uh, the spread of the gospel in a new place, this group called the Judaizers would always kind of swoop in and try to undo what Paul had done. Judaizers were, were folks that were dedicated to the Jewish law, and they believed that salvation came by keeping the law, and, and anybody that would preach grace or something different must be a heretic, and they would come in and try to undo everything that Paul had done. They hated Paul's message of grace. Uh, and so they would follow closely behind Paul, just about every city that he would go to. We read about the influence of these Judaizers who would come in behind him. They would try to discredit Paul. They would try to discredit the message of grace. And they would insist that salvation came by them keeping the law. And so they would earn their way or try to earn their way into salvation. So it was oftentimes that Paul would either circle back into these churches that he had left and moved on, and he would maybe pass back through there on a way somewhere else, and he would always try to circle back to, to, uh, to kind of correct the false theology of the Judaizers and to call the believers back to the simplicity of the gospel. And that's really what I want us to do today, is I want us to kind of circle back and look at the simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity of, of the true gospel that transforms people's lives. Uh, We're going to get to baptize this morning. It's always a picture of of a life being transformed. Not that the life is perfect, not that everything in that life is figured out, but they have begun a new relationship with Jesus Christ. And this transformation process that the Holy Spirit does is beginning in their lives. We live in a world that is more and more skeptical of the message of grace. The world looks at it and says, okay, what what are the strings? What are the catches? This This is too good of a message to be true. It's too simple to think that I don't have to work for my salvation, that I don't have to, to do something, that I don't have to join a particular church or, 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 or participate in certain uh, uh, rituals and stuff in that church. And so our world is growing more and more skeptical of grace. 
And in this day and time of an ever-changing culture uh, and a waning commitment to, to God's word, I think it's critical that we as a church circle back often to the simplicity of the true gospel. Um, it's a simplistic gospel, uh, not simplistic, but a simple gospel that is in so many ways so deep and so rich. The skeptics in our world don't want to believe it can be that simple. But the truth is the gospel is so simple that a child can understand it. And yet it's so unbelievable that there's many adults that just won't. So the skeptics have a hard time believing it. The, the legalist in the church always want to add something to the gospel. But like we've said before, anytime you take the gospel and you add anything to it, it no longer is the gospel. And that's what the Judaizers were trying to do in Paul's day. And so Paul's going to come back and to say to us that the gospel is simply this. It is, it is salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is what salvation is all about. And so how do we convince others in our day and in our time of the simplicity of the gospel? How do we say to a world that this is, this is God's gospel of grace and, and, and this is how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together? This is how the law and grace go hand in hand with one another in a way that they can understand and in a way that they can respond. And I think we can learn from Paul's, uh, Paul's discussion here in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians uh, in his example of how to come back and to, to call people back to the simplicity of the gospel and how to give them proof that grace is still active, that it still works, that it still transforms lives. So Paul had invested about two years in, in Corinth, and, and, and as he left, the Judaizers kind of swoop in. They're, they're attacking his credibility, they're attacking his character, and they're attacking the message of the gospel. And Paul's response provides us great insight into how we can handle those that are skeptical of this message of grace. Let's look at what Paul did, and, and there's several things that he did in this passage that I think will help us to be able to understand how we are to respond to those who go, man, can it, can it be that simple? Can it be that easy to come into relationship with Jesus? The first thing that Paul did in chapter 3, and we'll see this in verse 1, is that Paul did not try to defend himself. Paul is being attacked. They are trying to discredit Paul because if you can discredit the person, then you can discredit and throw away their message. And Paul is not going to stand up and say, let me tell you who I am and let me tell you my authority. Let me tell you that I was on this road to Damascus and God, God struck me down. God, God blinded me and then God saved me. He, he doesn't go back to all of that. And, and part of the reason Paul doesn't go back to that here is not that that story wasn't important, but these people already knew Paul. He spent two years of his life with them. They, they knew who he was. They knew his heart and his message, and they knew the love that he had for them. In fact, this letter that he's writing to the, second, to the Corinthians, this second letter that he's sending to them, is a letter that's hard for him to write, he admits, but it's one that needed to be written to call them back to the true gospel because what they were tempted to do was to take the gospel and add to it these different things the Judaizers said that they needed. So what he, the first thing he does, he doesn't try to defend himself. And if you and I are going to be people that are going to, to, um, to share the, the gospel of grace with others around us and live it in front of them, we, our first step is not to defend ourselves. It's, it's not about us. And that's what Paul's going to say here. So in chapter 3, uh, verse 1, 
he, he asked the question. It's kind of a rhetorical question. But he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? In, in other words, do I need to build myself up in front of y'all? Do I need to lay out my resume? Do I need to do all this kind of stuff? He says, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Now, now what he's saying is here, this, these, these false leaders would come into these towns that Paul had been in, and they would bring with them a stack of letters and say, here's my, here's my resume. Here's letters of recommendation from the last place that I was telling you that we have the true message, that we have the true gospel, that we are the one true people of God. And they would bring in these letters of recommendation and they would present them to the churches that they were entering into to try to get the credibility for the church to listen to them. And then when they would get ready to leave, they, they wouldn't stay long, but when they would get ready to leave and go to the next town, they would ask this church to give them letters of recommendation to the next church. And so Paul is kind of playing on that. He's saying, listen, guys, I'm not going to come in here and try to build myself up. I'm not going to come here and try to defend myself. I'm not going to come in here and try to tell you that, that I'm a true apostle and all of that. He says, you know me already. And what's needed here is not a, a letter of re- recommendation to you or a letter of recommendation from you. You guys already know me. Paul didn't pull out his apostle's card and say, let me show you my credentials. He didn't pull out his resume and say, let me tell you what I've done in all these other places. He doesn't talk about himself at all. They already knew about Paul. Paul was writing to them to remind them of something much more important than Paul, and that was to remind them of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul didn't care if they remembered him. He just wanted to make sure they remembered the gospel. And so Paul takes them right back to it. In fact, the second thing that Paul does is that he provides them proof of the power of the gospel of grace. And notice his proof that he offers to this church. In, in chapter two or chapter three there, verses two and three, he says this. He says, look, I don't need letters of recommendation. I don't need to present you with proof that I'm somebody you already know me. But I want to tell you the proof that the gospel still changes lives is right here in your midst. Look at what he says. He says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written upon our hearts to be known and to be read by all. And and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but written with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, talking about the Old Testament Ten Commandments, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul says, you want proof that the gospel still changes lives? Let me show you. Look at what the gospel did for you. Paul says, if, 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 if you think letters of recommendation are important and are needed, then I, I say to you, you are my letter of recommendation. What God did in your heart when I was here, what God did to transform you, what God did to save you and to forgive you and, and to flood you with his grace, that's the proof that there's still grace and that grace still works. Paul says, let me, let me show you my proof. And then he holds up a mirror for these guys to look in and say, there's my proof. Look at what the gospel did for you. Listen, guys, when you and I are trying to share with skeptics and to, to tell them the difference of the, of the gospel of grace, it doesn't need to be a theoretical type thing. You need to be able to say to them, let me tell you what grace did for me. This is who I was before I came to Christ. 
And this is why I needed Jesus. And here's how he's begun to clean up my life and to, and, to, and to change some things in me so that my life can be more and more pleasing to him, so that my life can better represent who he is. The proof is, is in the person. The proof is in what God has already done. But Paul doesn't use himself as an excuse that would come, or, or as an example. That would come across as very arrogant. But Paul says to the church, he says, man, I've, I've loved you guys, and I've walked with you, and I've seen what the Holy Spirit's done. I've seen the way that he's transformed your life. And if you want proof that, that grace is real, let me, let me encourage you to look at yourself. You are my letter of recommendation. Guys, as, as a pastor, we, we look at our congregation, and, and in so many ways, you are our letter of recommendation. What's the proof that the gospel still changes lives? It's, it's you. It's looking at how God's changing you, looking at how God's working in your life, looking at the hunger that you have for the gospel, looking at the way that, that you're trying to, to serve other people, looking at the way the Spirit of God is able to stir your heart so that you think outside the box and you begin to see the needs of those that the rest of the world just walks by or, or other churches would just point their finger and condemn. And, and yet you're looking at them and you're going, this is an opportunity that we have to serve and to love and to show the gospel of Jesus Christ in a very real way. Those who need grace the most are those who deserve grace the least. And when the Holy Spirit begins this work inside of us, uh, of pouring out his grace on us, and all of a sudden we say, you know what, I want to find a way to pour that grace out on other people, then we are the letter of recommendation to the skeptical world who thinks that this thing is, is, is just too good to be true. The Corinthian church had been changed. The people in that congregation had been changed by grace. And Paul is going to say to them, don't you go back to that old, don't you go back to that old covenant. Don't you go back to those old ways. Don't you go back to trying to earn your salvation. That's not how you do it. It's by grace and grace alone. He says the gospel had been written by the Holy Spirit upon your heart. You experienced it. You knew that freedom of forgiveness. You knew the, the, the condemnation and the guilt that was lifted. You, you've experienced that firsthand. And as, as having been one that's experienced it, you realize that it wasn't by you keeping some external law, but it was by God doing a work down deep in your heart. It wasn't the external forcing of you to keep some kind of a command, but it was God that works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you, you've experienced the Holy Spirit coming to work inside of you. You've experienced this change of desire that happens so that you're not forced to live the gospel, but you want to live the gospel. He says, you want proof that the, that the gospel of grace is still real? He says, you are that proof. Paul knew that the best proof of the gospel of grace uh, was the lives that had already been changed by it. And he says to the Corinthian church here, you know that grace is real. And you know this gospel of grace works because it set you free. And it changed your life. In fact, this grace did for you what the law never could do for you. It brought to you a righteousness that was not achieved by you keeping the law. It was achieved by what Jesus did on the cross. And so Paul preaches this, this gospel of grace, and it changed hearts. It inspired others then to begin to want to live for the Lord. It gave them the power that they needed to begin to change those things in their lives that needed to be changed. Here's where we mess up so many times, is that we read in God's Word of things that we're supposed to be doing or things that, that we, we, we might not be, should be doing. 
And we determine in our own strength that we're somehow going to accomplish those things. So you come to church, you hear a message, you go, oh, this is what I need to be doing this week. And you try with all of your strength to be able to do that. But here's the the reality. If that doesn't start down deep in our heart, if God is not transforming our heart first, it won't be long until we will fail at those things that we're trying to do on the inside. So Paul says this, this, this proof of the gospel of grace is the changed hearts that come. Because God always starts on the inside and he works his way outward. The third thing that Paul does in this passage is that he refuses to take credit for what God had done. You want to give the world proof that, that, that grace is real? You've got to stop trying to explain it away in human terms. You've got to stop trying to take credit. Well, I just preached great messages, man, and lives were changed. I'm just the world's greatest pastor, and look at our congregation. Paul says, no, no. Stop trying to take credit for what God, only God can do. He says in verse 4, he says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as having come from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the changes that took place in you didn't take place in you because of me. He says, God was doing this work. We are insufficient in ourselves. We, we cannot claim sufficiency in ourselves. And we can't say that anything that's happened has come from us. But our sufficiency is from God. Anything that's been done in your midst has been done by the power of God. This morning we get to baptize three ladies. And you know what? We can't take credit for any of that. It's not that they've sat and heard great preaching all these years and and it's just the natural response to a a great pastor. We can't take credit for that. But I will tell you this, God uses preaching and God uses the word of God and God uses people in our community and people in our lives to be able to point people back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in this passage, Paul refuses to take credit for what only God could do. He said, our confidence that we have comes from the Lord. It's not that we are sufficient, but it's that God is our sufficiency. And he has made us sufficient to be ministers of this new covenant. Now I want you to grab this before we go any farther. If you have come into a relationship with Jesus Christ and God has placed his Holy Spirit inside of you, guess what? You are now sufficient, equipped by God to be a minister of this new covenant. Every one of us are called to be ministers. Every one of us that are believers, we have been given grace, and now we are called to be ministers of that grace to those around us. You rub shoulders with people every single week that I will never meet. You have an opportunity to work side by side with individuals who may or may not already know Jesus Christ, and and, and you're going to be right there with them for 8 or 10 or 12 hours a day. And you're going to have an opportunity to shine light of the gospel of God's grace in their world where I will never, ever be able to reach them. Every one of you who have been endowed by the Holy Spirit, been indwelt with the Holy Spirit, you have now been, been made sufficient, not because of yourself, but because God lives in you to be these ministers of this new covenant. And so Paul says, don't try to take credit for what only God can do. He has made us sufficient to be these ministers of the new covenant. And notice this, not enforcers of the old. 
How many times do we feel like it as believers is our job to be spiritual policemen who want to run around writing people tickets when they mess up? I caught you. I caught you. We, we caught you doing something wrong. I'm going to write you a ticket and let you know how bad you are. Many Christians feel like that that's their job. It's not. Our job is to be Jesus to the world around us. And what Jesus did was to love people. He pointed them toward the truth, but he did it in a very loving way. He met them where they were, and he met their needs. And through those opportunities of ministry, he was able to display grace and to offer grace. And that's what we are called to do. We are called and equipped by God to be ministers of this new covenant. And we do that when we realize that anything that God would do through us is God's doing and not our doing. If I will be surrendered to the Holy Spirit, I will be open to God using me and and willing for God to do things through me, then God will bring people into my path that I can then be gracious toward, that I can be loving toward, that I can work to share the gospel with. And, And anything and everything that happens through us happens from God. So he's called and he's equipped every one of us to be these ministers of the new covenant, not just enforcers of the old because the old kills, he says. You say, how does the old covenant kill? Think about this. The Ten Commandments that God gave Moses back on Mount Sinai. Were those intended to be the pathway for people to be saved? Did God give us the Ten Commandments so I could keep them and and through keeping them I could be saved? That was never the purpose of the the old covenant. Well, What then is the purpose of the old covenant? Why did God give us the Ten Commandments if that wasn't our path to salvation? Have you ever thought about that? The purpose of the Old Testament law was to show us how desperate we are for a Savior. He gave us the Ten Commandments knowing that we would never be able to keep those things perfectly. But in failing to keep the Ten Commandments and understanding the consequences of not keeping the Ten Commandments... I realize that I am in deep water and that I am in big trouble and that I'm going to need somebody to rescue me and somebody to save me. And guys, listen, so God uses the law to show us our shortcomings. And then he points us to Jesus to show us that he is our all-sufficient Savior. And that's what Paul is trying to say here. Don't try to take credit for what God's doing because here's what God's going to do. He's going to use the Old Testament, but that Old Testament brings death. It makes you aware of the fact that you fall short and that you are spiritually dead and that you need a Savior to come and to save you. And so the old will kill, but the new covenant, the covenant of grace brings life because it points us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. In all of us who have been saved by grace, have been made sufficient to be these ministers of grace, the givers of grace. We simply give what God has given to us. So when you meet a skeptic and somebody says that grace just can't be true, you may say to them, you know what, I used to think that as well until grace was poured out and forgiveness was offered, salvation was granted, and little by little God began to change my life. And I'm not perfect, and I haven't arrived. But you know what? I'm not who I used to be. And I'm not who I'm going to be 
But I am a work in progress and I am a testimony of God's grace. If you only knew me then, you would see that grace still changes lives. Paul is saying to the the Corinthian church, your life, your changed heart, your love for others, that is the letter of recommendation that is known and is read by all. The thing I love most about our baptisms this morning is this. I didn't get to lead one of these people to Jesus. You say, why is that great news? Because it means that God used others to do that work. People just like you. It's moms and dads and grandparents who've poured into teenagers' lives. It's youth workers and and children's workers and VBS workers and all these people who have poured into young lives and those young lives have grown up and now fruit is appearing in their lives. It's nothing to do with a pastor. It's people just like you that have lived the gospel and shared the gospel and, and, and demonstrated that. It's husbands loving their wives and families loving each other. And it's, it's living out the gospel in a way that it makes sense to those around us. It's neighbors reaching out to their neighbor and saying, you know what? I just want to introduce you to Jesus. I want you to know other people that, 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 that love Jesus. And it's neighbors that care for neighbors. It's, it's the work of, of, of all of us together as we simply reflect the glory of God that he has bestowed upon us. It's believers living out their faith for others to be able to see. And so when we live by grace, God's glory is revealed to those around us. Sometimes it's in a grocery store. Sometimes it's at work. Sometimes it's just a, 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 a passerby that, that we meet and we, we do something nice for them and they see the reflection of God's glory in us. Paul says in verses 7 through 11, that the glory of grace far exceeds the glory of the law. That God's glory shines brighter through grace than it does through the law. And yet so many times, all the church is known for is what? What we stand against. Oh, you Baptists, I know what y'all are against. Okay. That's the law. And he says that glory is fading But the glory of grace far exceeds it. Look what he says here in verses 7 through 11. He says, now if the ministry of death, talking about the law, the ministry of death, which was carved in letters on stone. Remember when God wrote the Ten Commandments on the stone? And if it came with glory, so in in other words, when God did that, remember Moses went up on the mountain and, and God met with Moses and for 40 days Moses was there and God carved the Ten Commandments with his finger in the stone and and gave them to Moses and Moses came down off the mountain and his, his, his face just shone so bright. The people said to Moses, oh my gosh, Moses, cover yourself with a veil. You're so bright and the glory of God is all over you. Just cover, cover that glory up. So he's saying that, that, that old law came with great glory. The ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of the glory, which was being brought to an end. In other words, that glory would fade. This was the neat thing. Moses would put a veil over his face when the glory was bright. And then as the glory kind of faded, he would take that veil off. And then he would go back and he'd meet with God, and the glory would come back, and he'd put the veil back on, and and, and this, this, this up again and down again, this glory and fading. And he says that's a picture of that old law, that old covenant. It was given in great glory, but its, its purpose has been served, and it's, it's fading, if you will. He said, if that which came with glory 
was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit, this is the ministry of God's grace, have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that's the Old Testament, the the Ten Commandments that brought condemnation upon us. If there's glory in the ministry of condemnation, then the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had 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 come had I'm sorry, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that has surpassed it. Here's what he's saying. The glory of grace is so much greater than the glory of the law that it's as if the glory of the law had no glory at all. For if what is being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. The law was given to show us our sinfulness and to point us to Jesus. And now that Jesus has come and His Spirit dwells in us as believers... We, we are not, we are set free from the law. Now listen, this doesn't mean that we don't live out the law. But it's not an external motivation anymore. It's an internal motivation that the Spirit of God brings to us. Jesus summarized the, the whole Old Testament law in, into two, two things, didn't he? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. That's the first commandment. And then he says, and the second commandment is like it. What? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the calling of grace. To love God with all of our heart and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. To to love God and to love others. That's what the gospel is boiled down to. And that's only possible, guys, as we experience God's grace. And so the glory of grace far exceeds the glory of the law. The, The law showed us our need for grace, but grace does what the law could never do. It saves us from the sin that results from not being able to keep the law perfectly. The law served its purpose. It showed us that we were sinners. It made us desperate for a Savior. And then it points us to Jesus, who is that Savior. That's the purpose of the Old Testament law. The Judaizers were trying to call this Corinthian church back to the law. And Paul says the law has served its purpose. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So we as believers can't stop proclaiming this gospel. Our world may be like Moses' world where they say, oh, tone it down, cover it up, hide that glory. If you want that glory, that's fine, but keep it to yourself. And Paul says we can't do that because to stop proclaiming this gospel, to stop shining the glory of God's grace into our world is a very cruel thing to do. It would be cruel and unloving And it would leave our world lost if they can't see the glory. The glory of God is this letter of recommendation that they can read and that they can study and that they can respond to. And so Paul says here in verses 12 through 18, the fourth thing is to let the world see his glory in you. Look at verses 12 through 18. He says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. As a result, look what happens. Their minds were hardened. In other words, he hid the glory and their minds stayed hard. And for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, talking about the Jews that still go back to that Old Testament covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, he says, to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. 
So how do we lift that veil? By shining the glory of Christ to our world. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed to the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So what he's saying here is real simple. He's saying that that what happens is that God comes to live inside of us. Moses hid the glory of God. We are not to hide the glory of God. Now he says this, he says we are to be bold, to be very bold. He does not say as believers that we are to be obnoxious. It's a big difference. Be bold. Don't be afraid to let the glory of God shine through you. Don't be afraid to talk about grace and the difference that grace has made in your life. Be bold. In, in promoting what God has done for you. You're not bragging like, look at me and look at how great I am. You're saying, look at how God took a sinner who was condemned to hell and he poured out grace that was undeserved. And that undeserved grace has begun to change my whole perspective. It changes my identity. It changes my, my security. It changes everything about me. It takes away the insecurity that I felt where I had to have other people give me validation And now I know who I am in Christ. Let the world see. Don't be obnoxious. Here's what he's saying when he says be bold. Be be like Jesus. Be able to extend grace to others around you. Live out your faith and make known his grace. But do it with love and do it with compassion. Let others know what he has done for you. Don't be afraid to tell the world. How God has stepped in and the difference that he has made. And it's not because you deserved it. It's by grace which is undeserved. Offer the world the hope that he has given to you. And don't hide God's glorious truth. Don't tongue down God's glory like Moses did. And leave the world without an opportunity to see his glory in all of its fullness. Shine that glory so the world can see it and they can experience it. Moses hid it and the hearts remained hard. We are to shine it so that hearts can be changed. Our world needs to see the proof of the gospel of grace and know that it still changes hearts. They need to know that there's still hope for them. And the best way for them to know there's hope for them is for you to share with them the hope that you found in Jesus Christ. As we head into a new year, God's going to bring people into your circle of influence. People that will be brand new faces to you, some that will be friends that you've had for a long, long time, and they need to hear about the grace of God that's working in you, that's changing you. But let me encourage you to be as patient with them as Jesus has been with you. We want Jesus to to be patient with us, but we want others to change instantly. We, we want to, to see God work slowly and methodically in our lives. And yet we want God to do instant work in all those that kind of rub us wrong. Be as patient with them as God was with you. Give them time. Give them space. Give them opportunities to read and to reread your letter of recommendation. Let them look at your life. And let them observe how God's grace continues to change you. 
There's some fruit that God wants to grow that's going to take a long time to grow. But man, won't it be sweet when it ripens? Look at the end of of verse 18 here, the end of this section. He says, we with all, all of us with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord. In other words, looking upon the glory of the Lord, seeing God's grace in our lives. We are being transformed into that same image, the image of Christ. From one degree of glory to another. Here's what he's saying. Number one, you haven't arrived. <laughs> and number two, there's still more work to be done. You're being changed from glory to glory to glory. It's a process called sanctification where God takes us from where we were and begins to reform in us this image of Christ. And it takes the, the rest of our life to do that. And so we are there. God is not done with any of us. And so I would encourage you in this new year, as a believer in Jesus Christ, to let the world watch as God continues to form his image in you. This means that we as believers have got to stop pretending that we've already arrived. Stop pretending that we've got it all together, that we've got everything figured out, that our lives are are picture perfect. We've got to stop that pretending. We need to let them see, let the world see God's grace in this growth process. There's times I get it right, but there's many times I get it wrong. Let them see both. We've got to let the world see God's strength even in our weakness and God's forgiveness even in our failures. We've got to let them see that our only hope for transformation is found in God's grace and that their only hope for transformation is also found in God's grace. And he says in verse 18, at the very end, all of this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. If you're not finding your identity in Christ, if you don't know who you are in Jesus, you're not going to be able to be open and transparent because you're still trying to impress. But once you know who you are in Jesus and you're secure in Him and you know that nothing can ever separate you from the love of Christ, then you can be real. And then you can show the world that the power of God's grace as it works in you. So when you encounter a skeptic, or somebody who doubts that grace can be true, you are the letter of recommendation that they need to read. You need to be an open book that they can look at and see how grace has worked to transform you and how that grace is still not finished. It's still got this work to do. Let God's grace do the talking. Let His glory shine through you by you being gracious toward those around you. Paul says, let me just wrap it all up right here that you are the letter of recommendation written by Christ with the blood that he shed on the cross, written by the hand of his spirit for all the world to read. So here's my encouragement for you in this new year. Keep your letter simple and keep it to the point. Focus this letter that your life is upon the grace of, of God. It's not about you, but it's about Jesus and the grace that he pours out on you. Live a life that screams to the world that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And give God all the glory as you let others see the powerful proof of what grace can do to the human heart.
And if we will do that, guys, we will be so far ahead. And the world will see the difference that grace makes when you and I take the grace that God's given to us and we extend that grace to the world around us. Let's pray together.